So, I think that's probably the end of Octothor. Oh, what? For this week. Oh, okay, good. (laughs) Brilliant. Hello everyone and welcome to Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 10th of June 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And our cunning plan succeeded because people wrote us letters of comment. They really did. In droves. Is dro- Does droves have secret negative connotations I'm unaware of? Nope. So we had a tweet of comment from Ange who said that she left the BSFA at the point that trying to pay to be a member was incredibly complicated because she had to pay by cheque. And that is a good point. Uh, I do think the BSFA does now allow you to pay by direct debit. And in fact, they're, they're encouraging all standing order members to switch to direct debit because it's easier for them. Um, so, uh, or maybe it's not direct debit. Maybe it's Maybe it's like PayPal debit card subscriptions or something but anyway they are moving towards a more joined up digital method there was as i recall a continual problem with standing orders where people would set up a standing order for a fixed price and then the bizfay would uh raise their memberships and people would completely fail to update their standing orders and so they had this continual thing of like a handful of people who were paying at the prices from like six years ago or 10 years ago so that's probably why they would like you to do it in a way that allows them to actually charge the full cost. Yeah. But but I will say again, membership organisations where all you get for your membership is a bunch of paper magazines are a creation of essentially the Victorian age. And you don't tend to get new organisations that work that way. And organisations that do work that way should consider whether there are other ways they could work. But we're having a panel on this at um, Punctuation. Um foreshadowing join early join often no please don't join often because every time you join often i have to write some emails and i don't like that i have given up writing emails for lent (laughs) um fair enough good to know good to know duncan mcgregor tweeted at us to say that he thinks board games podcasts may be closer to the classic sf fanzine interaction model than many fanzines and podcasts in sf now i have a list And I don't think this is just true of board game podcasts, Duncan, but I do think it is true because another community that does this is tech podcasts. I'm a member of... Only some tech podcasts. I'm a member of five Discord servers and Slack servers uh, involved with podcasts. So I am on two board game podcast servers and three tech podcast servers. I know that listener Andrew January is on a couple of servers for various Twitch streamers in which they use those to communicate with their communities. So I do think that a lot of this kind of community interaction is happening on Discords and Slacks. And that is that is a good point and one that we did not uh, cover last time. So thank you very much for your tweet. And this podcast does not have a Discord, but it does hang out on some Discords. So, you know, you can find us on Discord. Come and join Anonymous Claire. Um, If you don't know how, just ask everyone you know called Claire until you find the right one. Um, (laughs) Anonymous Claire is is a Discord server for people who are adjacent to British fandom. So it's possible that you might not qualify if 
your only contact with British fandom is that you listen to this podcast. But you probably do. <laughs> Phil Dyson tweeted at us to say, on the subject of Canada and music, Spike mentioned Backman Toner Overdrive, but that overlooks the finest moment yet recorded by Winnipeg's two greatest musical sons, Randy Bachman and Neil Young. And he sent us a YouTube video, uh, and if you go and look at his tweet, you can watch the YouTube video, and it is indeed loud. We'll put a link in the show notes. Obviously. You don't have, we're not going to put a link to the tweet from which you then have to click through and get the link to the thing. If we're mentioning the, the video on YouTube, we're going to put the link to the video on YouTube in the podcast show notes. All right, hang on. A YouTube link that Alice... No, on which Alison insisted. <laughs> Done. <laughs> we also got a couple of letters of comment from people who um, wrote in saying, uh, thank you for like asking how we were. We're very well, thank you. How are you? So Maggie and Karen Schaefer wrote in and um, Karen talked about her jigsaw puzzles and she says that she expects that we're not truly interested in jigsaw puzzles. But um, I know that Liz and Alison are both jigsaw puzzle fiends and I do not have the patience. Oh, Alison's shaking her head. But Liz f***ing loves them, Karen. F***ing loves them. I don't actually do physical jigsaws, but I found that I can do online jigsaws while doing other things, like, for instance, recording podcasts. And I just find it very relaxing. I like jigsaws, but they're in the class of things like filking, where if I had an infinite life expectancy, if, if somebody came along tomorrow and said, congratulations, Alison, you're immortal, I'd find a lot more time for jigsaw puzzles in my life. And, and and filking and quite a lot of other things, actually. Like, I definitely learned Japanese properly this time. Um, Karen also says, did you know that Winnipeg is famed for the Ukrainian pierogies? And, um, you know. I like Polish pierogies, but I have to look for U- Ukrainian ones now. Yes. Not to mention walleye, a tasty freshwater fish. If you're lucky and didn't know, walleye cheeks, there are only two per fish. So so if I go to Winnipeg, if Winnipeg wins and I go to Winnipeg, I will definitely look out for walleye cheeks. Okay. Okay. I've also just noticed that on the picture of the jigsaw that Karen sent us, it says one piece missing. And I'm not sure I have the mental fortitude to be able to cope with that. Oh, you'd be really sad if you did the whole thing and then there was one piece left over. Yeah. Oh, sorry, one piece missing. If you do a whole, I mean, one of the things you could do if you're a bad human being is to is to take a jigsaw and then put one extra piece into every jigsaw in your local charity shop. <laughs> because I think I think finishing a jigsaw and discovering you've got a piece left over would be awesome. It's not the way it normally works. As somebody who's a connoisseur of electronic jigsaws, Liz, you won't have this experience. Electronic jigsaws, you don't tend to get to the end and discover there's a piece missing. No, you do, because in the platform I use for electronic jigsaws, sometimes you find that one piece has kind of got hidden under all the other pieces and then you can't find it. Um, But it also lets you finish the jigsaw with one or two pieces missing on the assumption you might have done this by accident. I'm not sure whether to applaud the platform for having faithfully recreated the experience of a physical jigsaw or to wonder why they have chosen to recreate this specific part of physical jigsaws. Yeah, so, so do they also recreate the sense of crushing ennui that comes from spending six weeks working on a 2,000-piece jigsaw and then discovering there was a piece missing? Crushing ennui is definitely the name of my next contemplative funk album. I don't mind missing pieces in jig- jigsaws, so maybe this just... Liz! 
Yeah, I'm just in a completely different zone than the rest of you. Stop boasting about your excellent mental health. Octothorpe, the podcast of science fiction and science fiction fandom, and <laughs> Jigsaw Psychoanalysis. Why? What I love about this is sometimes when we have letters of comment and we have topics in the show notes, I can predict where those topics will end up. In this case, I would not have predicted like just my awe at Liz's robust mental health, like being the point at which we wrapped up discussion of Karen's letter. That is most excellent. And this is why we need more layers of comment. <laughs> I didn't know this listeners. was a sign of excellent mental health. I will, you know, if I don't, ever, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. It certainly seems very very balanced and and sensible yeah to go oh yeah i can finish jigsaw there's a couple of bits missing and i'm not i don't get upset about that that is not my personal experience oh i see okay okay oh no oh no i've luckily i've given up anger listeners write in and tell us which one of us is um uh, which 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 side you are on in this debate if you could write in and tell us the integer number of pieces that you are comfortable being misses from a jig- missing from a jigsaw, I will draw a graph of Octothorpe listeners against number of pieces missing. Me and Alison are zero. Liz, what's your number? Uh, well, it's not an integer. It's probably a fraction. It's probably like a proportion of missingness of the jigsaw, isn't it? Oh, shoot. Good point. What's your, fra- what's your, what's your percentage missing? I don't know. I'll let you know when I've got like 95% of this jigsaw done and see if I'm annoyed. So as I said, I think having zero or one piece is missing would be quite, zero is fine. One piece missing is quite distressing. Finishing a jigsaw and discovering that you had minus three pieces missing or 2.6 pieces missing or I pieces missing would be really quite discombobulating. All right. If I discovered I had I pieces missing from a jigsaw, I would be discombobulated because I think that's a sign that <laughs> physics has gone wrong and the elder ones are invading. So, yeah. Maggie also wrote to us saying um, that she liked that. Um, she liked that we did a little discussion corner for Wusfers last episode. Um, she can look up jargon, but it can hard be hard to look up why things are considered important, particularly for local fandoms. And she asks, this is her first world con, and there seems to be a lot of internal politics becoming vis- visible. Is this typical, or is it just a silly question? And I do wonder whether... Uh, I think it's a function. It's it's fractal. There's more internal politics the harder you look, much like a coastline. But also there's more politics. So some of it is internal. But some of it is caused by the Worldcon is coming under greater pressure than it used to because it's becoming more global, which means it's representing more different communities. And the Hugos in particular are much higher profile than they were, I think, even 10 years ago, but certainly than 20 or 30 years ago. And that has really changed the, the whole dynamic of the politics of the Worldcon. Um, that gets me a chance to tick off something that's further down the um, list, which is the Hugo Voter Packet is finished. I mean, my bits of it are finished, and I'm very pleased about that. And it should be with you in a week or so. Let's not make any... I think there's an official line, which is, it is in preparation, and we will let you know when it's done. Okay, excellent stuff. Well done, Alison, for doing that. Good, good, good. She also says, I'm looking forward to hearing Alison's take on someone being a professional enthusiast. So if we get to um, the phrase rampant self-promotion later in this episode, you'll get to hear. Uh, DC congratulates Alison on her guest of honour thing. 
That is the week after punctuation, so it'll be just after the next episode, and I'll plug it again there. It is called Conspire, and it is the annual general meeting of the British Science Fiction Association and the Science Fiction Foundation, and they also have guests giving talks, and there's a panel, and um, the other two guests are Tada Thompson and John Clute. Um, So that all sounds very good to me. It'll be a good day, and it's free. Come along. That is pretty good company to be in. Yeah, no, I don't know why they've invited me. <laughs> I'm just like, a, yeah, God. So we've got also a couple of things talking about fanzines, which we're going to use to seamlessly segue into our first topic. So um, Peter Sullivan sent us a tweet saying that my point about lack of innovation in PDF fanzines is fair and notes that at one point it looked as if high frequency was going to be the new innovation with zines like Vegas Fandom Weekly, The Drink Tank and Science Fiction San Francisco. Um, My wife, Hispania, was one of the editors of SFSF when it was a going concern. Um, And The Drink Tank is Chris Garcia's uh, fanzine, which went away and then came back again. I can't remember how many issues. There's been at least 400, um, but many, many issues. And yeah, that's a good point. There was there was a point at which it looked like uh, high frequency was going to be the new innovation. Uh, I think that has mostly gone away in favour of... I think high frequency is still an innovation. I just don't think the people doing high frequency fan writing are doing it in PDFs anymore. Like File 770, I met someone who insisted that every single blog post was an issue. And on that metric, File 770 has published many issues now. Um, I'm not sure whether Mike Glyer thinks of every blog post as an issue. I suppose we could ask him. Mike, if you're listening, get in touch. I'm not sure Mike Glyer has a radio. He's not going to get podcasts on the radio. Uh, So Chris Garcia wrote in saying that he's a fanzine nerd. No, really? And he's sad that Journey Planet doesn't get many letters, um, but uh, they just don't get letters or many mentions on social media. And he says it's weird that apparently nominating us for Hugo's is how most readers interact with us, which is, uh, (laughs) well, good stuff, Chris. Thank you very much. And he notes that... um, he thinks you can tell where podcasts come out of fanzine tradition because of the interaction with the audience, which is something we mentioned uh, with Duncan's tweet earlier, but it's a good point. Mark Plummer says that he is cheered to hear um, him and Claire described by John as more innovative um, and talks about the early electronic fanzines, um, which I think um, uh, Alison has things she wants to say about. I just picked up one tiny little point from this, which was when you say that high frequency is an innovation or was looking to be the innovation for some time and that um, electronic email fanzines started in the mid-90s. When I got online, which was 1993, the fanzine done by... Evelyn and Mark Leeper, the empty void, had already been around and online for a very, very long time. And it was, in fact, in the form of Usenet posts. I mean, it was also a mailing list, so you could get it by email or you could get it posted to Usenet. Um, Usenet was kind of like Discord for the past, for our our readers, (laughs) listeners, whatever. Um, And that was weekly. So that was a weekly fanzine. They're still doing it. And this is the amazing thing because they are still doing it. They have been doing it for over 40 years. Um, It now contains things like update on Evelyn's hip, which, you know, is, I think, one of the things that happens to people after they've been doing fanzines for more than 40 years every single week. Um, But it's there. It's um, and I think the fanzine and maybe 
both Mark and Evelyn separately either have Hugo's or at least have been nominated for Hugo's for this work. But yeah, so it's not, it's, it's kind of a very old, all the ideas are new again. It comes round and round, but it was all—it was always electronic. I mean, I'm sure you, it was possible to get it on paper if you were in the right place. And certainly, I know people who get it, probably still get it religiously every week and print it out because you know. But it's there. Uh, we will put a link to it in the show notes because you could go and read it online. It's online. He notes that banana wings would print only until 2012, when there was a huge hike in international postage, and um, Mark and Claire started doing e-pubs then when people had e-readers and him and claire both got e-readers and he says he's not aware of anyone else doing uh, an e-pub fanzine before they did it in august 2012 so i immediately sent him a link to a copy of my fanzine procrastinations which was an e-pub in 2011 uh because i think i was the first i'm happy to be proven wrong but I, i certainly in like the fanzine circles i was running in um it was something i wanted to do uh because i was having this rant 10 years ago uh and the fact that the rant still exists in almost exactly the same form uh says a lot i think but yes i do think you know epubs are good more people should do epubs john were you sending your epubs directly to people's kindles because i think that is uh an area where i really enjoy that just sometimes i open my kindle and update everything is on it and a new banana wings pops up it's great so uh no i was letting people download them the old-fashioned way mainly because um i don't have a kindle yeah i'm not sure if you could i mean i'm not even sure if you could send stuff in in 2011 you definitely could by 2012 because that's how i get my banana wings fix and obviously you lock religiously liz no i'm a terrible person who's very bad at sending locks yes so john foister did send text emails as fanzines that he designed to be read in um, landscape because he thought that most people would be reading them on their computers and that that it is still the case that quite a lot of stuff you see coming in in electronic fanzine form is nevertheless clearly designed to be written to, to be read as as a4 pages and uh, now i quite like reading things that are formatted for a4 pages on my ipad but i know that lots of people don't so yeah, Mark mentions that in a kind of, you know, at one point, if you were writing, a, if you're making a PDF for your fanzine, everyone would be reading it on a computer monitor. But now, actually, PDFs work much more, uh, work much more nicely on tablets. And quite a lot of people have tablets. It's also possible, you know, with, with my phone being basically a giant thing now with high resolution that I could also read PDFs quite nicely on my phone. How big, how big's your phone, Liz? Um... <laughs> I mean, this doesn't really work on 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 camera on on a podcast, does it? But it, it's this big, Alison. Jesus. <laughs> uh, for the listener, I think it's roughly. Imagine Liz was hap- was holding up a sort of averagely sized chopping board, <laughs> and then just add a little bit around the edges, and that's how big Liz's phone is. Yeah, it's probably a sign that you should not buy phones uh, sight unseen uh, on the internet, um, unless you want a big one. Which is actually not true for other things that you buy on seed, site on seed on the internet, where they tend to turn up quite small. I have Googled it and it is uh, 163 millimetres by 76 millimetres. So it's quite hefty. No, and I think I think you are probably right that uh, PDFs work better on um, 
on phone screens than they did 10 years ago because uh, obviously phones have gotten bigger and the resolutions have gotten better. Um, I'm going to try loading a randomly selected fanzine on my phone and it's loading. Uh, so this is point one against PDFs, much bigger than EPUBs, and so it's still loading. I might just keep all of this silence in. <laughs> I'm not going to try this this live fanzine demo. The other thing is obviously that you you can't um, you can't do things like if you are um, if your eyesight is not very good, you can't do things like um, adjust the text size. Um, in in terms of kind of like doing it automatically with like accessibility features and there's just there's a bunch of little things that make it worse when you can't assume what someone's reading it on um and i do think in general i'm much more likely to read epubs on my phone just because they have so many little kind of kind of features like that just before we move on to something else mark said the other thing i will say on fanzine delivery mechanisms is that if you have the rss reader feed bin which you can subscribe to at feedbin.com you can have it um, convert emails into things you read in rss reader and so i subscribe to transfer orbits and another fanzine uh in my rss reader and i enjoy that very much um Uh, we should probably say that feedbin is a paid service um i love it three dollars a month something like that yeah, it's five. I don't. It's fine. It's not. It's not huge. John, how are you going to handle art in your perzine? Because that's what I wonder about with sort of EPUBs. Is they're not really as great for art. I mean, you can't do stuff like having the art in the corner and having the text flow round it like you would in a in a physical artifact. But you can do like you can kind of put images in EPUBs like without much trouble. So I don't know whether. I, I don't think it's a problem to have a picture in an EPUB. It might be a problem to have like art uh, text flow around it as opposed to just having text, then image, and then text. Um, but I don't know. I don't necessarily think that's a big problem. I am now holding up my iPad because art's lovely. Art is lovely. In On iPads. I mean, it's just... You, you get even bigger iPads than this, I believe. Mark also mentions in his letter the fact that putting together all the different versions that they do for banana wings is drudge work. And this was quite resonant for me because I've just been doing this work on the Hugo Voter Packet. And the thing about the Hugo Voter Packet is they're not actually more work than a lot of other tasks involved in putting a big convention together. But it feels more, a lot of it feels more drudge-like. And I think that thing about converting formats and getting things in the right place and making sure that everything is reasonably consistent is is very thankless work that as as mark says it feels like work and and we tend to like our fanac to feel like not work to feel like things that are fun even if they are actually taking quite a lot of time and involve quite a lot of background work so i thought that was an interesting point i think for me doing the layout work also feels like work layout's the fun bit I mean, it can be. <laughs> but no, doing the layout in WordPress is obviously extremely painful. So yeah, there's that. But also like doing stuff like the layout of my TAF report, which was like 100 pages in InDesign, 
it, that very much feels like work. Whereas doing like a little newsletter in Easter Con in, in pages feels fun and like you just get to like spend two hours mucking about and then publish it. Um, so I do think there is a the, the the I think the thing that I find doesn't feel like work is splitting these things into small chunks that are regular, which is one of the reasons why we do a regular sub one hour podcast rather than an irregular marathon, uh, which I know some podcasts, especially in the Vanish space, do. But the other reason, like we've transitioned Lulzine to basically being an article a month, and that feels much more fun than having it come out four times less frequently, but with four times more articles. Which, and I don't know, because it's the same amount of work, but it definitely one feels way more like work than the other. And for me, it's that regularity and size of work that that I think. But I think you're right that um, it's all about finding the ways in which you have fun while you're doing the FANAC. Because uh, you don't want it to feel like work um, so far as you can make it not feel like work. I'd say that, you know, a lot of the work I do for conventions and things is quite boring grunt work, or at least a lot of it can be. Like, if you're putting together a program, there are some fun bits which are deciding what you should do and who should go on them. And then you also have to send a reply to, like, 6,000 emails and, um, you know, put things into a schedule and move them about. And it's basically sitting in front of a computer doing a lot of stuff which feels a lot like what you do in an office job in front of a computer anyway. So back programming was one of the other tasks that I thought probably felt quite a bit like this. Yeah, I don't find I mean, I don't find it super tedious, but maybe because I do slightly different things on a day to day basis. And I guess I found I find the outcome quite satisfying, satisfying enough that I don't mind basically sitting in front of my laptop a lot of the time, moving program items about and seeing if one of them turns red. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think Fanac for me in terms of com running, com running is way more fun when I'm doing the com running while drinking a beer with other people on Zoom than it is when I'm sitting on my own not drinking a beer doing the com running. And so I think that's the other thing. Like for me, the way we've been doing a lot of the punctuation work is that we will just have evenings where we're not really necessary to each other in terms of like having actions that rely on one another, but we can hang out and like just natter like a virtual office. I think what we're discovering here, listeners, is that talking to people and personal interactions are important and good. And I think that is a revelation. We should probably publish this in some sort of psychology journal. And Liz, as chief mental health haver, should be the lead author. (laughs) It's really interesting, actually, because there are some sorts of work. I quite like some sorts of fiddly, tedious work. And that I'd include quite a lot of photoshoppy stuff and also the Airtable. Airtable is the back-end database that um, that punctuation is using. Um, that sort of stuff I really like to do on my own with only electronic music or other people's podcasts for company. And then there's other stuff like, um, I don't know, you know, I think I've got a long list of things that I might do. To like, like, like I spy at punctuation. That's obviously going to be much more, if, we, if it happens, it'll be much more fun done during our our drunken actions evening tonight and i think for me the things that i find super fun even though i know lots of other people find quite drudge worky are programming computer programming find that enormously fun i can get sucked into that for hours and the other one is tidying up i can tidy up i love tidying up listeners john please come to my house (laughs) i have occasionally tidied things up where people have been annoyed at me for instance, 
because I apply my tidying up in both the digital and and physical realms, and oh. I have learned things about the <laughs> the apt times to do that. And when I should absolutely on no account be doing that, stop it, John, stop it. Why are you still doing that? Uh, <laughs> See, also John and Alison had a row, which I think we're actually taking as a topic for next time because we had a row about something totally different but the reason we had that row was that i was still really angry about john messing with my air table in real time the previous day <laughs> so that, that was a complete fail in terms of human being interaction thing don't tidy things up when people are l- using them that 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 <laughs> is a point of reflection for john uh for sure <laughs> yeah as I got a bit older, I would find that sometimes instead of having parties where you'd come down in the morning and find that your house was full of like seven to a dozen empty beer glasses and, you know, half sliced lemons that got left on the counter, people were actually spontaneously tidying up the kitchen for us at the parties. And this, I think, was the best thing ever. I've done that New Year's Day in 2012. I crashed with my friend Tony at his new year's party and he got down in the morning to find that i had put everything in the bin and and rinsed everything out and etc and he was like what has happened and i was like i was bored (laughs) i like tidying though when we went to america in 2003 so it's quite a long time ago my kids were quite little um we were staying with jerry in minneapolis and we woke up in the way of people who have just flown from from the uk the following morning at about half past three and we went downstairs to discover that jerry had left out for us some breakfast or, or some suggestions as to how we might acquire breakfast at three o'clock in the morning three thirty in the morning and also a pile of 400 fanzines that needed to be collated and stapled <laughs> in a sort of I, I assume that when you wake up you'll want something to keep you busy until eight <laughs> so yes also, for people who find that people are tidying up at their after their parties, welcome to middle age. This is the sort of thing that old people do. Young people aren't hap- nicely tidying up at the end of the parties because they were at- too pissed and they were doing inappropriate things and they didn't particularly want to deal with Fred's vomit anyway. I mean, I will just say that the story I just told about when I was tidying up, I was 22. You are wise beyond your years, young coxswain. I just fucking love tidying up, Alison. You don't understand. Seriously, come round. I mean, come round. It's fine. Yeah, John, come and visit. Come and visit. Uh, I can see some clutter in both of my um, co-hosts' Zoom calls. I literally think there's no clutter in this picture. There is one open cupboard door. Oh, the reason the cupboard door is because Keeler's left us a load of shit on the floor so the door won't shut. But apart from one open cupboard door, (laughs) there is no... So I can indirectly observe the effects of clutter. Yes, but you can't actually see it directly. Like, indeed, a black hole, which is what Stephen's side of the room is like to some extent. Let's stop talking about your husband's black hole and (laughs) move on to discussing TorCon. Uh, 2021 which when you listen to this listener if you are listening on the day it comes out it's today at uh 7 p.m eastern time which is midnight in god's true time zone of england as you know to be fair england's not currently on god's true time zone because everyone knows that jesus was born in greenwich uh there are some panels and whatnot there are apparently giveaways content drops and more we will put a link in the show notes uh, there are various authory people, and it will be very fun if you like that sort of thing. I don't think it has any of 
it, I don't think it has any elephant-friendly content, by which I mean... Insufficient beer. Parties, hangouts, even a bit of chat to your author. No, it's panels and stuff. It's would you like some, to watch some television about science fiction authors? Yeah, but it's a good set of science fiction authors, I think. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's, I'm sure it's great, but I... It's, it's not what you think of as a convention. It's, it's some television with authors on. It's not what... Ca- yeah, I'm going to say I don't think that events, that author, a series of author events over a weekend maketh a convention. I, I think that I require some interaction between the attendees for it to be a convention in my books. Um, what does make it a weekend convention for Alison then? What was that? Sorry, I was trying to badly segue into punctuation. Oh, you're, oh, you're segueing into telling, talking about our convention. Yes. Punctuation will not have insufficient beer. It will have sufficient beer in that we have a beer tasting and you can order your beers, listeners. We also have a gin tasting and a cheese tasting. So order all of the food and drink. And if you've had a birthday since the beginning of the pandemic, we are having a birthdays party um, to celebrate all of those birthdays. We're particularly celebrating people who've had milestone birthdays. But in my book, every birthday is a milestone birthday. So we're having a birthday party. So you might want to make sure you've got some cake. If you have not had a birthday since the start of the pandemic, please also write and tell us, because I think that's one of those other signs that physics has gone badly wrong. <laughs> leap babies. They won't have had a birthday. Oh, leap babies. Yes. Uh, yes. We will have a party just for leap year babies also. So if you are one, write in. So if you were born on the 29th of February and you had and you celebrated your birthday on the 29th of February 2020 because you had not noticed that the pandemic was on the way and that a birthday party was not the perfect idea, um, which is fair enough. It was quite early. I was still meeting people in person for another week after that. Then Death, congratulations, you've not missed out on any of your birthday parties. But I think, don't people whose birthday is the 29th of February actually celebrate a birthday every year anyway? I think I'm pretty sure it's illegal to celebrate your birthday on a day that's not your birthday, so I hope not. Moving on. It better not be because we're definitely celebrating everyone's birthdays for no matter where <laughs> they were at the birthdays party at punctuation. All members of Worldcon76 got an email this week informing them that SFSFC, the uh, parent body which ran Worldcon76, have settled the ongoing lawsuit um, over their public statements surrounding the, the uh, preemptive banning of an attendee from the event. According to the discussion on File 770, this was settled for $4,000 and the apology that was sent out to all members. But there were other requests in the lawsuit that were, were not, did not end up in the final settlement. So it appears this is now finished and settled for Worldcon 76. And we thought we might discuss what this means both maybe for Worldcon 76 and for other Worldcons and conventions. I'm, I'm a bit worried about it because I think it makes a statement about the um, efficacy and applicability of codes of conduct, which have become very common for conventions and for um, other spaces that, that fans hang out. I mean, I quite like codes of conduct. I think they're good. I worry that this makes it that now that we have seen a successful, it depends how you mean successful lawsuit, because it seems likely that the costs of bringing this lawsuit were not um, 
were not less than $4,000 because I believe that $4,000 will buy you about 20 minutes of a, an American lawyer's time. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone's a big winner here. But I, I feel like um, it may mean that other people are inspired to sue conventions that they don't like um, for, thing, for doing things that, that the convention thinks is reasonable under its, its own rule. So, yeah, no, I'm worried, I'm worried about it. I'm worried about everything to do with the business of running modern conventions. But that's one of the things. I think I'd say that it, if you read the, the email received, they're not actually apologising for uh, banning someone from their event under the Code of Conduct, but for the statements they made around it. Um, so, obviously, there is a kind of room for conventions. If they're worried about this settlement, then obviously the way to do it now is to just... Uh, enforce your code of conduct by, you know, preventing people's attendance at the convention, but probably not to make public statements about it or to make public statements which basically are just sort of incredibly neutral statements of fact. So it's maybe uh, not quite so chilling there. I mean, what worries me is that, yeah, you can't really say who, who, who has won this one because obviously the settlement is less than the amount that was asked for and probably is less than the amounts of the legal fees needed to fight it. But it also probably costs way more than that in legal fees for the convention and has tied up a lot of their time and effort and basically prevented them from fully winding down the convention over the past few years. So I think it's very much a sort of neutral outcome. Yeah. I mean, I think when I've when I've been involved in code of conduct things at UK conventions, the statements from the convention have been really quite neutral for all sorts of reasons. Um, they've been kind of, you know, we determined that a member violated the code of conduct and we've asked him to leave, that sort of thing. So I don't know, you know, obviously, if you kind of go, well, what have people been saying in private? What have people been saying? All the sort of stuff that can be get sub- subpoenaed, then there's a there's more of a risk there that that stuff would come out that you really didn't want to be be public uh, this probably goes back to fanac feeling like work that that sort of sense of oh we have to be very we we have to do everything in a very professional manner all the time makes everything feel much harder but on the other hand i do feel that things like the separation of listener teams from the main um convention management is quite a good way of of actually making sure that the people who are dealing with complaints of that kind do treat it very very professionally. I think like um, it must have been very stressful for Worldcon 76 to still have this uh, hang over them three years after um, the result. I think it's notable that this settlement comes after the judge refused um, summary judgment, which would have meant that this went to full trial. And... Yeah, I can understand entirely why Worldcon 76 have done this. Um, you know, I think, and, and you know, I think hopefully SFSFC can kind of move on and um, put this behind them because I think they probably deserve to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a shame because I think they probably went into it with the best of intentions to make a statement, you know, which which, which kind of reinforced you know, that they had a code of conduct and that they had certain values they were trying to enforce. And basically, I think in hindsight, that statement was an ill-advised statement to make because it left them open to this lawsuit. And this is going to have cost them a lot of time and effort and money. I mean, I, I think we should mention it. And we're kind of, it's just more, it's now another thing in the big background of why it's harder to run conventions than it used to be. On the subject of it being harder to run conventions than it used to be. <laughs> Convergence 2021 is going ahead. What are their dates, John? 
the 5th to the 8th of August, Alison. And so this is clearly a decision they've made, I think, uh, because they have contractual obligations. Um, they basically say they've got a choice between holding this physically or dissolving their events com- company permanently. And they've decided, therefore, to hold the physical convention. Um, and yeah, they're, so they're going to do that. And that's happening. Um so this is the first science fiction convention to be held kind of in the brave new world. In person. The first in-person science fiction convention to be held post-pandemic. It's being held in Minneapolis. And my impression is that the US are now slightly ahead of the UK on ter- in terms of second doses. So in terms of fully vaccinated people. Um, so what do, we, what do we think about this, peeps? Who's getting the plane to Minneapolis? You're kidding, right? Well, I mean, I'm hoping to go to a folk festival in August, so, you know, I'm not completely averse to it. I think it reflects the fact that in the United States, um, full vaccination has essentially been available to anyone with privilege for some time now, because unlike the UK, and I guess probably Thailand, but I think certainly the UK, the UK's vaccinated people in a strict order, and unless you were really super rich getting vaccinated out of order hasn't happened you've basically wasted your turn and not everyone has had their turn yet and not everyone will have had their turn by um this that time in august so i don't think that would be practical here because i think there'd be people who be like well we want to come to the convention and we very much like to get vaccinated but we're not able to and i just don't think that's the case in america i think everyone who wants a vaccination and has the resources to get a vaccination which probably means has the resources to go to a convention frankly it's not a huge amount of resources required um will have had them by then um so in that sense maybe they do not yet have the Delta variant. They are not in the position where that we are, where we're waiting to see what whether the rise in cases leads to a rise in hospitalizations and deaths, including people who are vaccinated. I I feel it's a bit early, um, and but I understand that they're going to go bust if they don't do it. So, you know, I wouldn't go. So I, I think they do have a few cases of some of the variants of concern in the US are just not rising or dominating at the, the rate they seem to be in the UK. And yeah, I can I can see that if you're at the state where, you know, the authorities are saying if you are vaccinated, it is fine to essentially go back and do most of the things you were doing before. You can take your masks off, you can meet other vaccinated people. Then if you can do that on the small scale then maybe you are ready to do that on the scale of, you know, up to 3,500 people, which is what their maximum participation numbers are. And I can very much see that they are caught between either we do this or there is no more convergence. And so we're going to do this. And I think it'll be interesting because I think some people do feel, okay, I, I am vaccinated now. Everyone I know is fully vaccinated now. If you're in the US, you're vaccinated with highly effective vaccines. Yeah, it's ready to go back and do it. It's two months away. so. Hopefully, you know, the the infection levels will drop even further. But when I read it, I was like, wow, that seems incredibly early because I'm still in the mindset that's thinking, can I put 10 people in a room maybe next month? Would that be all right? So I am a very simple mathematician here, not not really a mathematician, but I'm kind of like, so I go and see, sit in a garden. We sat in sequential gardens in Cambridge 
last week. So we saw about 10 people over the course of the day, but in four different gardens. So so the n- total number of interactions, and we were all socially distanced. So, you know, t- and we were outdoors. So the social number of interactions may be, I don't know, 40 or 50. Um, but if we put the same or fewer, 20, uh, but if we put the same 10 people into a room, then it's 100. And if you put uh, 81, if you put... Um, 3,500 people in an exhibition hall, it's a lot. And and that increases the risk a lot, but maybe not enough. I don't know. Um, I will also just note that um, the first convention that's on my calendar is the UK Games Expo, which is end of July, uh, and will be substantially more people, I think, than uh, Convergent would be. Um, so I don't know. Oh, so you're going to one before that indoors. You're going to an indoor, in-person convention before Convergence. Yeah, I think we're asking, are you planning on going to the UK Games Expo? Oh, no. I mean, so I won't be, I won't be, <laughs> um, sorry, the way Alison said it really confused me. I don't know why. Um, no, so I would have gone to the Games Expo if I had been double vaccinated before it ran. But as it stands, I will be vaccinated two weeks after. And so going without having had both jabs seems like a bad idea. Mainly because if I caught COVID from a convention two weeks before my second jab, Hispania would be so smug. That she'd kill you again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, so I don't think I will. But I was planning to if I was double vaxxed. And it did look for a while like I might be, but um, but no. And so this is the other thing, because I don't know what the age profile of um, convergence is like and the health profile, because... Um, I feel as a, I'm not that old, but I am quite fat. And I think being fat's really big risk factor for this. And, and I am therefore more fretful than I might be if I was um, the, the, in the prime of peak physical health in the way that John is. But I don't know what, whether convergence, because a lot of like Worldcon fans tend to run old and unhealthy. But other conventions, there are probably other conventions where that's not the case. I've never been to Convergence, but I suspect it skews more towards the younger and healthier end than a Worldcon. Um, so the other thing to note about Convergence is that because they are mandating everyone who goes must have two vaccinations, if you are under 12, you cannot go because there is no way you will have had two vaccinations. Uh, they note this on the web page. Um, I, I do think in their defence, it is clear that they are only running this event because they have to. And I think if you have to run an event this is probably the right set of compromises to settle on. Um, but if you are a parent of under 12-year-old children, that is going to have a huge impact on whether or not you can attend. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, speaking of somebody who has was in, this, the, was in the position of taking children to conventions, and um, I just feel like some conventions aren't really ver- a very good fit for children anyway. So... It's a shame that they can't have kids at this one, but lots of conventions are not really a good place to go with kids. You know, you have to think of that all the time when you're thinking about which conventions to choose. Worldcon site selection is now open. It costs 50 of your United States dollars to vote. And the options are Chengdu um, in 2023 and Winnipeg in 2023, and Memphis in 2023. Strangely, all winning from the same year. What are the chances? I will probably be voting 
Winnipeg, then Memphis, then Chengdu. It'd be quite nice to have some of the conversations about World Concert Selection before the last week of the voting period, especially for those of us who are not going to DC. Um, like what I'm not. Peeps, are you going to be voting in site selection? I think if I were to vote today, I would put the bids in the same order that you have. But I'm not absolutely persuaded yet because I really don't feel I've heard enough from either Winnipeg or recently from Memphis. I mean, I think the fact that we haven't heard a lot from Memphis is is quite telling, but but I feel like I'd like to hear a bit more. And I'm hoping that opportunities to learn more about the bids will emerge between now and um, between now and the the, the deadline for site selection, the, the postal deadline. Uh, here's a bit of, for people who don't know, if you are at the Worldcon, physically at the Worldcon, you can vote in site selection right up until lunchtime Saturday or so. I mean, quite, you know, well into the con um, at a desk. You could basically take your money and pay and they sort you out. But if you're not at the Worldcon, there is a deadline which is some considerable time before the convention. And so site selection has traditionally been quite a complicated process, even online, where essentially you replicate the physical activity of submitting a ballot because they do quite a lot of work to make sure that the secret ballot is secret because um, sometimes... Uh, this, this is something about the club ability and entrenched. It, it's kind of like balls in an urn, isn't it? It's they are working quite hard to ensure that people don't find out that their mates have voted against them. Yeah. So, so, um, so there's quite a lot of structure in the process to to make that happen, and it means it's not that simple. And you do need to vote fairly well in advance um, in site selection and you need to allow yourself a few hours to get it done. You're not necessarily going to be able to go straight onto the site and vote. But I would hope that more information will emerge about the bids that allow me to really feel confident in voting for Winnipeg. And to support that, I believe that um, Terry Fong's a member of Punctuation, so I'll probably try and um, grab him in a bar and tell him to tell me why his bid is so wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, fortunately, punctuation is virtual, and so Terry will not have the experience of having, like, Alison spot him on the far side of a crowded bar and, you know, elbow everyone else out of the way to get there and demand a pint and reasons why she should vote for Winnipeg. Are you suggesting that you've seen me act in this way in previous years when we were not virtual? I don't think she's suggesting it. I think she's saying <laughs> it with her words. <laughs> I, will, I will take that as a reflective point of feedback. Thank you. I should say, if if I I wouldn't go if I saw Alice and you're like charging uh, across the bar towards me, I would not go and hide. But this is partly because I remember you doing that in Dublin and you had a load of drink tickets. So I did basically. I found JC, who was the treasurer of the convention, and I I hung him upside down in the, the by his ankles until I gave he gave me enough drink tickets that enough groats that I could be fairly sure that nobody left in the bar would be required to buy another drink for the rest of the would be required to pay for another drink and then I stood at the bar making sure that anyone who went up to the bar had sufficient groats to cover their round uh, yeah um, it was good I don't remember all of that night <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking a little bit about a little thing called Punctuation 2, which is coming to your computer screens and um, also your televisions, if you have a computer that will plug into your television. 
oh, I love this. Come into your TV if you can plug your computer into your TV. Uh, you can also... You can also Wi-Fi your plug to your TV if you'd like. I don't necessarily need you to use a cable. But yes, and it's going to be the 18th to the 20th of June 2021. Uh, please come along. Memberships are 0 5 or £10, pounds, uh, depending on how much you choose to pay for one. And we would love to see you there. Uh, and it will be good. We'll be announcing the programme sometime real soon now. But we can... Um, exclusively announce. I mean, we might have announced the programme by the time this episode goes out, but we can exclusively announce that one of the programme items will be at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, Octothorpe Live, because it is, in fact, two weeks today and it's on our normal recording schedule. And the rest of our committee said very kindly that they would be completely fine with us being off podcasting for an hour and a bit. So so do come along and join us for Octothorpe Live. Mm-mm. Indeed, it will be a good thing. And we will be taking questions from the audience. Questions such as, why are you so wrong about fanzines? Yes, it's it's being recorded at our usual time, which means it will basically be 11 o'clock on the day after John and Alison have partied until the wee small hours. I mean, I will also have partied until the wee small hours, but that will be slightly offset for me. Yes. Uh, so it will be exciting. And we have some tastings lined up. So there will be a gin tasting on the Friday night and there will be a cheese tasting on the Saturday night and there will be a beer tasting at 7 o'clock on the Sunday night. So get your cheese, beer and gin in. We have already said that. Probably. Doesn't hurt to say again. More gin. And and last time, some people who had got this virtual convention going down to a fine art had full English breakfast delivered to their homes. And I am going to commend this as a, a method of getting your, your full English breakfast because I haven't had a full... I, I don't think I've really had very many full English breakfasts in the last 15 months because I would have had to have cooked them myself. Do miss hotel breakfast surprisingly much. I mean, I miss a lot of other things about, you know, not being able to travel anywhere, but I do miss hotel breakfast. I mean, a good hotel breakfast is a great thing. A bad hotel breakfast is not. Espania's first English breakfast was at the Radisson Edwardian at the 2012 Eastercon. She had never let me forget it. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, for one of those cons, we, um, we actually stayed at one of, the, one of the hotels, kind of two doors down, but it's the very big doors. Um, but everything, uh, apart from the fact that we had to walk for five or ten minutes to get home and back everything else about it was infinitely better they had a pool they had fantastic breakfast they looked after us properly they didn't treat us like some sort of low-grade scum um sorry just reminiscing about in-person conventions and how i can't wait to get back to them it's gonna be good but not yet god we're gonna have so much to podcast about when we actually go to in-person conventions it's like do you know that they had a whole room where all they did was serve beer and chat <laughs> thank you very much for listening to this episode of the octothorpe podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Wait for my section on rampant self-promotion later in this episode. I like the idea of Chris Garcia rampant on a coat of arms. 
Oh. Do, do, do you know the history of animals rampant on coats of arms? I'm going to assume sex. I don't know. It wasn't really the sex. It was just kind of rampant. And then in Victorian times, they decided they were a bit too rampant. And so they kind of rearranged the animals so that their rampant nature was less obvious. Chris, find a fan. Like, if you could get Vanessa to send us some fan art, we will feature it in next episode. And that would be fantastic. This could be the new version of the Shield of Humour, couldn't it? I don't know what that is. What's that? Do you not know what the Shield of Humour is? Okay, um, so when we're talking about um, classic fandom and why it's not relevant, um, it was the it was the thing worn by the you know the Knights of St. Anthony. I don't know what that is either. It's just okay, fine. Sorry, <laughs> I've only been in fandom. Keep your Shield of Humour brightly polished. I mean, I um, I regularly polish my Shield of Humour. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, you regularly polish your, your um, coat of arms with Chris Gossier rampant. Uh, and then, so sorry, Chris. <laughs> so, I feel like this might have got out of hand. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.